Well, we are back in James, and remember, we have to bear in mind that James doesn't speak with a County Antrim accent, nor any sort of Northern Irish accent. We need to train our ears, I had said previously, uh, so that we hear what he's actually saying, uh, rather than what we think he, he should say. This is God's Word. And we thought last time I was here about uh, how God uses the afflictions in our lives, not to destroy us, but to test us. Just as gold is put into the furnace to be purified, not consumed, so trials are not aimed at us being approved, but improved. And if you can remember the the introductory uh, sermon I preached on James, I referenced uh, how minister and author David Gibson labeled James as a letter written to churches in danger of dying. Now, if you think you are in danger of dying, or even if you don't think you're in danger of dying, but you've noticed some symptoms in your life that have begun to cause you trouble, if you're wise, uh, you'll normally make contact with the doctor uh, at some point. We can think of James as a sort of doctor, dealing first with the varied, seemingly unrelated symptoms, but then making an incisive diagnosis. And the diagnosis, as we discovered, is double-mindedness springing from a divided heart. Chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, chapter 4, verse 8 as well. Speak of this double-mindedness, this divided heart. And we've seen previously in chapter 1 that Christian practice, pr- Christian practice is what James is focused on, that the Christianity we profess is matched by Christianity in practice. It's why in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, we we ask for a credible profession of faith. It's easy to say something, but is there any evidence that what you're saying is true? So we're asking for uh, a faith that is not only professed, but practiced, that we, in a sense, you know the saying, that we practice what we preach, or more pointedly, that we practice what is preached to us. And that is what James gets into more at the end of chapter 1 that we're considering this evening. And the first thing we'll see uh, in this, uh, especially in verses 19 to 20, is that God requires righteousness. God requires righteousness. Now, James gives us a number of commands in verses 19 and verses 21. And then in between, we have verse 20, the foundation for these commands. It says, for... Uh, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So that's what verse 20 speaks of. The fact that God requires righteousness. We need to be clear on what James means when he says that. And again, here is where we need to recognize James's different accents. Uh, or as one uh, commentator says, perhaps no greater mistake can be made in interpreting James than to read his letter in the light of Paul. You see, when we think of Paul, we think of righteousness as an act or gift received from God. Here, however, that's not possible because of the use of the word produce in connection with righteousness. Look at what it says there. It wouldn't make sense to understand James using the word righteousness to speak of an act of God when he says human anger could not produce such righteousness. And in the context, he's calling for the opposite, implying that the opposite of of anger could 
produce the righteousness of which he speaks. So rather than leaning on Paul for meaning, we should see James using righteousness in line with how it's used elsewhere in Scripture, which we might say is, is conduct or behavior in keeping with God's will. Conduct in keeping with God's will. And we can see, for instance, uh, Jesus' use of righteousness in Matthew 5, both in verse 10 and then in verse 20. Matthew 5, 10 says, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus clearly here is not speaking of a declaration over someone, but of righteous living. And so the righteousness which James speaks of lines up with this idea. So God requires righteousness. We might be inclined here to interpret this as, well, surely Jesus is the only one who meets God's righteous requirements. And so we need his righteousness imputed to us. But we ought not to read in justification here when James' focus is clearly on what we call sanctification. Uh, and if you're wondering what those are, maybe you don't know your shorter catechism. Well, the shorter catechism tells us what is justification. It describes it as an act, as we were saying, an act declaring righteousness. But it says this uh, as the answer to what is sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness, question 35. So it's not a, a one-off act, it's an ongoing work. And so here is the problem for the double-minded, double-hearted, divided-hearted Christian. The problem is that we fall short. Are we as as far along as we should be, it brings into view or into mind our view of the future. I wonder, as a, as a Christian, if you're sitting here tonight, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future? Surely it should be to be more like Jesus each night when your head hits the pillow than from the day before. To be more like Jesus this time next week, this time next year to keep pressing on and following Jesus so that in your final future, do you aspire to have the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. God requires what we might call lived out righteousness, increasingly known in the lives of his people, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, those who have already been declared righteous in God's sight as an act, but now this work of ongoing being made holy uh, takes place so that we increasingly become what we are. So James states this fact that God requires righteousness in the context of commands to the churches he writes to then and now, with the implication being his readers are falling short of where they should be and how they should be behaving. So he writes out of, of pastoral concern to lovingly correct them. Uh, and we can see that even in his opening term of, of endearment. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. And he goes on to tell them what he wants them to know. He says, let every person 
be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let every person, you made me wonder first time that, seeing that, thinking, well, why, why is James using this phrasing? I mean, there's emphasis here. He could have just used the normal second person plural imperative, as in you or you all be quick to hear. But instead, he says, let every person. I wonder where most in the churches he wrote to already doing this, but there are a few exceptions amongst God's people. I wonder, are most of you here this evening doing this, but maybe there is one or two exceptions not doing this, and it's not good in the context of God's people. Now, with any uh, group of people, you usually get uh, some big-time talkers as well as others who don't say uh, much at all, but this isn't just to do with temperament or personality. It's actually to do with our growth in holiness. But so let's focus on the exact content of this command. We have uh, commands to be quick and to be slow and to be slow. First is quick to hear. And again, we might think we're quick to hear what? And many take this as advice for uh, interpersonal relationships, uh, for maybe marriage prep. You know, a couple are thinking about getting married and, and this is a good thing. Uh, you know, we know, of course, you've probably heard the saying, we've got two ears, one mouth, so we should listen twice as much uh, as we talk uh, and things like that. Uh, maybe it is in a situation of, uh, of disagreement or tension between family members and this would be wise advice for interpersonal relationships. Maybe it's a difficulty in a church setting. Maybe it's a committee meeting here, uh, or maybe it's some other meeting, or maybe it's out in the car park uh, talking to someone. Uh, maybe that's good advice. And of course, that would be wise in any relationship to be quick to hear, uh, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I can't count how many times I've been quick to jump in offering solutions to problems before they've been fully expressed or not hearing someone's words in their context uh, properly fleshed out. And the reality is the environment we live in these days is very much a headline, soundbite, clickbait culture where you, you see your newsfeed and you see this outlandish headline and you think, you know, what on earth? And you click in and then you find it's a pretty boring story and they've just got you with the headline. But Oftentimes, we like to do that in our relationships. When someone says something, and, and we, we zoom in on, on the one line, the one line statement, and we remove it from its context, and so it sounds completely different to how it was intended. Is that really what that person intended to say, the way you are now repeating it to someone else, or the way you're now putting it back to them? Be honest. Well, in verse 19, there is uh, great wisdom for our relationships with one another. However, we need to not isolate that one verse from its context, uh, from its context in, in what's just been said, both before uh, and then what's about to be said afterwards. Uh, quick to hear, verse 18 speaks of the words. Brought us forth by the word of truth, be quick to hear. Verse 18, and then verse 21, uh, again, speaks of uh, the implanted words. So rather than just relationship advice, good advice though it is, uh, to avoid difficult conversations, there's a sense here very much that this is uh, to be quick to hear God's word. 
to be slow to speak in response to God's word, to be slow to become angry at God's word. I wonder how many find it hard to listen to God's word, to sit in silence and hear. Many want to speak back, to question, to disagree, to reject, to say, well, I wouldn't say it like that. Why is it coming across like this? I don't like what I hear. And the reality is, sometimes it might be the preacher that angers you in the way they put things, but God's word at times angers us. It confronts us in our sin, and we don't like that. But it is doing so in a way like the surgeon's scalpel. It draws blood, it brings pain, sometimes without anesthetic, but the end goal is a healthier body to remove from us that which is harmful. And so this uh, reference uh, in verse 19 uh, to anger uh, is, is, is one of these things that we're called to not be angry uh, at God's word. And then this idea is developed, this idea of anger. And verse 20 shows that it doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. And anger is a major issue in Scripture. It comes up various places, various lists of sins in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And isn't it so because it is a sin that we are all in one way or another guilty of? We're all guilty of, of anger in one way or another. Maybe you don't think that as you sit here. If I were to ask you the short, simple question, are you an angry person? You'll be inclined straight away to say no. Maybe one or two of you will say, well, you know, yes, I can at times be angry. But anger, we have to realize, is, is, is a root sin and it can be expressed in, in many different forms. It could be cold, it could be hot, it could come across in a seething rage, but it, equally it could also be seen in bitterness about circumstances or situations. It could be expressed through irritation, through mild complaints, or the other extremes of, of rage and even physical violence. These are all stemming or from anger. And when we get really angry, it affects us entirely. Body, heated emotions, saying to the kids there, about we turn red with anger. Uh, judgmental thoughts, uh, we can have aggressive or passive-aggressive actions, even God-like motives we think we have when we are angry. But at its core, it's very simple. It expresses our view that we are against something. I'm against that. It's opposition to something you see as important and wrong and so sometimes maybe you think it's a righteous anger you have maybe it's the anger of i want my way or i'm an aggrieved victim well look at the verb james connects anger here to here in verse 20 i've already mentioned it produce for the anger of man does not produce anger is imagined as a plant and so the question is what will be its crop Verse 18 has already spoken of the first fruits through the word. And then in verse 25, we read of being blessed. And so there's a few images in this passage uh, that James is, is talking about that are connected in one way or another to Psalm 1. Two ways to live. One way, the blessed way, is like a tree planted by streams of water, producing its fruits. But the other way is like chaff, heading for judgment. 
and we might imagine a fruitless tree good only for firewood or a tree that only produces thorns and thistles. Human anger does not produce behavior that is pleasing to God. Anger is the stem that produces unwise speech, bitterness, resentment, violence, and even murder. It actually, verse 21, speaks of moral filth and wickedness. Now, when you first heard those or, or saw those on the page, you would immediately again think, well, these are not things I'm guilty of, you know, this moral filth and wickedness. But it very much seems that this is how anger has is, is gone on to be described, that it's actually anger that is moral filth and wickedness. And throughout James, this is focused on our words. Other sections we'll come to in James, it's, it's, it's a matter of our speech. And in our day and age, we might add our written speech, our letters, our emails, our messages, or even tweets for any of the twits among you, or tweet, tweeters among you. Uh, interestingly, uh, th these things, uh, whether it's uh, audible speech or written speech, they're a big problem, according to James. Your angry words are a big problem, according to God's word in James. A problem for your soul, a problem for your relationships and your family or amongst your friends, but also a problem for your church. And uh, I just uh, came across this article the other day, uh, which is a sort of, uh, for those of you who are familiar with C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, where it's sort of almost, he's saying the opposite of what he's saying. Uh, this uh, article was entitled, How to Crush Your Pastor. So here's the tips. I'm not going to read you the whole article, but I'll just give you the headlines. Uh, so Philip, prepare yourself uh, for this. And it's sort of, it's written to basically not do what's said here, but do the opposite. I'll just give you the headings. How to crush your pastor. Criticize him. Never thank him. Be unreasonable. Treat everything as a gospel issue. Compare his sermons to the great preachers on the internet. Inspect him to do everything. Pay him as little as you can get away with. And just to highlight one of the, the things that said uh, on, on be unreasonable. It says, above all, don't try and understand things from your pastor's perspective. Be demanding and insist that he only do, the things, he only do things the way that you think they should be done. Don't let him have a different opinion or different priorities. You know best. Also remember that church is all about you. It doesn't matter if your pastor is serving other people, caring for the sick, visiting people in the hospital, discipling young people. If he is not making you a priority, he has a problem and you have to let him know. Be, if you can find that online, it was uh, from Crossway, uh, how uh, to crush uh, your pastor. Uh, and again, the, these are all things that you could say to him or not say to him in order to crush uh, your minister. Hopefully, Philip, you'll not be receiving uh, comments at the end of the service today or, or emails through the week uh, with things following that uh, advice. And yet this, as I've been saying, this problem of words, angry words, is a big problem. A problem individually in our families and a problem for our churches. So as sinful human beings, Anger is a big problem for us. And we're called to put it away, to put away this filthiness, this rampant wickedness, to get rid of it. And that word, uh, put away or get rid of, really means take off, uh, as in removing clothes. In other words, we want to remove our pre-Christian lifestyle. 
from the believer. We're saying this is actually how the unbeliever acts and I need to remove this from me. Remove this moral filth, this filthiness. And if we don't see anger as morally filthy, well then we're not seeing it as God sees it. It is detestable and offensive to him. And, and there's a big problem with it as well, and that it's described as rampant. The idea of a, of a battle uh, where uh, a siege is underway and there's a, a castle and the walls are being attacked and there's a breach in one part of the wall and troops run over to, to fight off there and then there's another part of the wall and go over and you're being attacked on every side. And anger is one of those sins, isn't it? It's not the sort of thing you can just tick off and say, that's me done with anger, conquered, all gone now, no need to worry about that anymore. No, because it's the sort of sin that any day of the week, at any time of the day, we could be prone towards anger. There might be other things that there's a sort of once and for all putting off of, but there's always that temptation for anger. But we're called to put it off each time we're tempted by it. So, anger. At the hearing of the words, and there's meekness there called for in the hearing of this word. And yet, that all sounds maybe a little bit doomy and gloomy in this big problem that we have, and yet there is hope. Uh, commentator uh, Douglas Moo, writing about James, says, Emotions are the product of the entire person, and by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, the person can be transformed so as to bring emotions in line with God's word and will. In the Bible, God's word is repeatedly referenced in this passage, uh, and, and in verse 18, as I mentioned, so I hope you've picked that up as, as you read there. You read of the word of truth. You read of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so while God requires righteousness, presents us with a problem, there is an antidote in the Bible. And in the remaining time, uh, we'll see quickly three things that Christians have the Bible as. First, Christians have the Bible as an implanted word. Verse 21, an implanted word. Now, as I look out here this evening, there might be some of you who have some sort of implant. Uh, maybe you've uh, an organ transplant, you, so you've had an implant of an organ, or maybe someone here has a pacemaker. I actually have an implant in my arm, and if you're diabetic like me, you maybe will have the same one. It's Freestyle Libra. It's a little patch stuck on my arm with a little tube that's inserted. Uh, so it's an implant. Uh, and it's of great use uh, for me in managing my diabetes uh, for this last three or four years uh, since I've had it. Uh, it's an implant, and it helps. And obviously, that's a very minor one, a pacemaker or a, a heart transplant, uh, of course, is an implant which brings uh, life. And this is how God's word here is described. It's an implanted word to bring life. And again, there's this image of plants uh, and we have to counteract that with anger being seen as a weed or a thorn in the soil. Well, meekness, the good fertilizer of the implanted word, uh, we need uh, this to take root in our lives and not to be choked out and killed by anger. And, and so when we think of what this word means, uh, you could have the question, well, is this the word at the beginning that someone hears and receives and responds to for salvation? Or what is this? Well, again, a commentator says, the word that has saved cannot be dispensed with after 
conversion, God plants it within his people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer, giving guidance and command. You only need to go to the Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, to see what a believer does with God's word. A believer treasures it, holds it in his heart, uh, dwells on it, rejoices in it, meditates upon it, ponders it, lives by it. Uh, I've had the experience over the last uh, while, about two months ago, uh, I was in to see uh, a lady in a nursing home. Uh, Family had told me that it was coming towards the end and this lady, uh, her mind had had gone, uh, basically, uh, the the ravages of a form of dementia. Uh, And so when I went to speak to her, I asked her some questions and and very quickly I realized uh, the situation that she was in because I didn't hear proper words coming out of her mouth. I heard sort of garbled sounds. You couldn't really make sense of what she was saying. Until then, I read a familiar portion of Scripture. I started reading, and I read, The Lord is my shepherd. And I heard in response, And I shall not want. I said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I heard, For you are with me. This was someone who earlier in their life had heard and read, maybe sung these words so frequently that they were embedded, implanted into her life. And so when everything else she was saying was uh, nondescript, was garbled, she had God's word in her mind, rooted deep. And as God's people, we have his word implanted in us. Uh, The last sermon in James, we were thinking about the afflictions that we go through. And so that we take those words in times when maybe when we're not afflicted to prepare us for those times when we will be up against it, when the tests and trials will come and we don't know where to turn, that maybe something will come back to us in those moments and we'll think, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. God's word, Christians can have God's word as an implanted word. So, That's one thing we have the Bible as. Secondly, Christians have the Bible as a reflective mirror, and we see that in verses 22 uh, to 24, uh, the idea of a reflective mirror. Uh, If I read uh, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, so deceiving yourselves. Uh, The fruit of the implanted word is the doer of the word. And verse 22 really gives a check on our proclivity to self-deception. When we examine our actions, I wonder when you examine your actions, maybe as you go home tonight, as you, as you think through your conduct, as you think through your words, your anger, you can examine them and, and ask yourself, what do they say about who you are? When we have God's word as a mirror, it's a way not to be self-deceived. And the response ought not to be just, okay, well, I see this, so I better start doing A, B, and C. Before that, there comes a recognition that all is not well and that we need a changed heart. For it is out of the overflow of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. And so we ask that God would change our hearts. We ask that our hearts would be completely captivated by Christ and not by the glory of this world. To be deceived is to be blinded to the reality of one's true religious state. People here, maybe this evening, maybe you think 
all is well and good uh, with you. Uh, I was actually Philip. I was at uh, the, li- the installation that Philip was preaching at in Second Brashean there uh, a few months ago, and I remember he used the phrase uh, about people who are saved and stuck. And there's maybe some people who think see- being saved, being a Christian, is just about that one-off transaction. I'm a believer now, nothing else matters. Well, you're in dangerous territory when James is concerned because James calls us to take what he's saying and to use it to examine ourselves, our conduct, to then see what's really going on in our hearts and to ask ourselves if we do need a new heart or to ask ourselves if our heart has been diverted and distracted by the things of the world. And so it's a mirror. I think this is a quite a, a silly or a powerful image uh, in ways of, of what James uh, says here in verses uh, twenty. Uh, 2 and 23, he says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. Um, I have a wee tiny beard here this evening. Now, I don't see any other beards as I look out. Maybe beards, well, I see one. Uh, maybe beards aren't really the fashion around Connor, um, but uh, you maybe see some, you see some young guys these days, and they've got these big, bushy beards. They sort of look like Fidel Castro, uh, for those who know him, and the, the, uh, maybe the longer, the bigger, the bushier, the better. They hang out in the trendy coffee shops, and you see them around. And maybe you've seen, some are laughing here. You've seen, you know who I'm talking about. You get these guys, you know, who wear these beards. To be fair, though, some of the great preachers in the church, you think of Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, they all had big beards. Mine's only very short. Um, but uh, these beards, imagine you see one of these guys, you're in Balamina, he's just come out of coffee shop and you see his mouth is completely pa- plastered and probably sardo toast or something like that and, and he's got crumbs of avocado on the side of his and you sort of think what's this guy doing you know is, is, you know can he not see or do you not feel what he looks like he's got this all over and in a way you so happen to be in somewhere else maybe one of the shopping centers and uh you, you happen to be uh going into the the, the the toilet and you come out and he's going into the toilet you think oh, there's a massive mirror in there Surely when he comes out, the food's going to be gone. Goes in, he comes out, you see him, and he's still got his face plastered in this uh, sardo toast or whatever it happens to be. It's ridiculous. You'd be thinking, how does he not see uh, this issue? Uh, We can laugh at that. And yet what God's word does weekly as we hear it, as we read it, as it's pointed out to us, as the problems are pointed out to us, as it's proclaimed to you each Sunday, This is what God's word says. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows, not exclusively, but meaning basically the neediest of people, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, to be quick to hear and to be slow to speak. They're basic commands that James gives. Basic things like clean this thing off your face. We think it's so, so easy. Why has someone not done that? And we laugh. And yet, this is what happens when we have God's word as a reflective mirror. And we see it. And we see what we look like in light of it. And we do not seek to have our faces cleaned. Christians have the Bible as an implanted word and as a reflective mirror. And then finally, briefly, Christians have the Bible as a liberating law, verse uh, 25. Christians have the Bible as a liberating law. And uh, 
we see a contrast here uh, of the illustration that's just been used about this mirror, but it's uh, positively uh, put uh, here where it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, We have a tendency to think when we hear the word law as something that's restrictive, as something that places a burden on us, but here it's described as perfect and as a law of liberty. And and it's actually a follow-on for what's been described already as the word the word is described in another way as the law of liberty. And there is freedom in the law. And theologically why that's the case is because God has given his people for all time, all people, he's given his moral law. And that moral law is a reflection of who he is. He is a God who is not into adultery. He is a God who is faithful. He is a God not about death. He is the God of life. He is the God that is to be worshipped. And so the moral law that God's given us is a reflection of, of who he is. It's, it's a law to be used uh, by society. It's a law uh, that brings us to our need of Christ, but it's also then a law that reminds us and helps us focus on what actually God requires of us going on because we've been forgiven of our sins by Jesus Christ, but not so that we can go on sinning, rather so that we can live and work and walk in righteousness and God's law shows us exactly what that is like. And so it is a law of liberty. And so that's what we're uh, called to as, as Christians, to have the Bible as an implanted word, as a reflective mirror, and as a liberating law to deal with God, the fact that God requires righteousness. And so in closing this evening, don't be resistant to God's word. God requires righteousness. Don't be hearers only, because that would be to be self-deceived. God calls his people to be hearers and doers, and it's righteousness reflective of God's law. Don't be self-deceived this evening. God requires righteousness, and so receive and act on rather than react against God's word. Well, let's pray together.